0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome once again to Washington Watch. Coming up on this Wednesday edition, two wins for religious freedom today coming from the U.S. Supreme Court. The court ruling in favor of the Little Sisters of the Poor in the Obamacare contraception case, and the court also upheld... The right of religious organizations to hold their employees to a religious standard. Travis Weber, FRC Vice President for Policy, will join us later with more on those two cases. And yesterday, two members of Congress, Ayanna Presley and Rashid Talib, joined with Black Lives Matter, calling for the defunding of law enforcement, shifting the money to social programs.
1: The BREATHE Act is bold. It's meaningful. It's transformative. It pushes us to reimagine power structures and what community investment really looks like.
0: The measure would also incentivize states to close prisons and eliminate databases that track violent gangs. We'll be joined here by two members of Congress as well that have a different perspective. Congressman Greg Stubbe, a member of the House Judiciary Committee, and Congressman John Rutherford. Rutherford, the former sheriff of Duval County in Florida. And at a time that protesters are calling for, and some cities are, cutting the budgets of police departments, crime is escalating in major cities across the nation. Is there a connection? Vincent Hernam, author and law enforcement consultant, says the attack on the institution of law enforcement could reverse a 25-year sustained reduction in serious crime. He joins us here later on Washington Watch. And does the Black Lives Matter organization and their call to defund police and tear down statues represent blacks in America? Well, Dean Nelson, Senior Fellow for African-American Affairs here at the Family Research Council, will join me for that conversation. The website, TonyPerkins.com, if you're on Twitter or parlor, it's at perkins. All right. The threat to law enforcement agencies continues as the House is considering, may soon consider a new bill that would gut funding. Congresswoman Rashid Talib of Michigan is introducing a bill that would not only cut funding for police departments, but also abolish key departments like the DEA and ICE. Joining now to talk about this, uh, I would have to say absurdity is uh, Congressman Greg Stubbe, who represents the 17th Congressional District of Florida. He is a member of the Subcommittee on Crime, Terrorism, and Homeland Security, as well as the Subcommittee on Immigration and Citizenship. Uh, Congressman, welcome back to Washington Watch.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh,
0: before we uh, jump into uh, this uh, effort to defund law enforcement, I, I want to get your reaction to the court decision on the Little Sisters of the Poor today.
2: Yeah, what a long road for them over several, several years of having to deal with what they've had to deal with going through the court system. What a great day for them to get the opinion, and what a great day for all religious businesses and institutions that obviously want to abide with their convictions and their faith, now having uh, the leeway via the U.S. Supreme Court to hold their employees to the same religious standards that they have.
0: Yeah, it it is refreshing to come from this court. But for the Little Sisters in particular, after nearly a decade of uh, having to fight for their religious freedom in the court, they can return to focus on their ministry of serving the poor and and the needy. So certainly a a, a good day for them. But I want to move on to uh, two of your colleagues calling for essentially a defunding of law enforcement, uh, shutting down, incentivizing states to shut down prisons and stop tracking Uh, violent uh, gang activity. I mean, first off, is this going to see the light of day?
2: I I doubt it because the, the moderate Democrats don't want to be associated with this movement. So we recently had the Justice and Policing Act pass Uh, the floor of the House, that bill uh, won't be heard in the U.S. Senate. And Tim Scott's bill in the U.S. Senate, the Democrats, blocked and wouldn't even allow debate on that bill. But I debated that bill on the floor and talked about defunding that there were members of this House that have talked about defunding our police departments. And in debate, the Democrat on the other side said, oh, this bill doesn't defund police departments. And I said, well, I didn't say that it did. I'm saying that there are members of this House calling to defund police departments, and now we have language of a bill and a member saying that they're going to file this bill. So the moderate Democrats want to try to stay away from that as much as they can, but they can't because the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is calling for this, and you can't – if you're a Democrat and you're calling yourself a Democrat, you can't distance yourself from something that your colleagues are calling – Uh, for the implementation of. And it's crazy that we are actually sitting here having a conversation about releasing all prisoners in prisons and shutting down prisons and doing away with law enforcement in our country. I mean, we've seen the results of that in this this CHAZ or CHOP zone in Seattle, where eventually, finally, the mayor, after they went to her house, finally decided, well, you know what? Enough is enough. People are 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 being raped and murdered and killed. So we've got to shut this down.
0: Well, the, it, it would seem absurd on its face, but this is getting traction. In fact, today Joe Biden was asked if he would redirect law enforcement funding to other programs as uh, this bill calls for. It actually calls for the elimination of the uh, immigration and customs enforcement. Uh, it, it calls for the elimination of the DEA and this money then being diverted into, you know, social programs, healthcare, education, environmental, uh, housing programs i mean this is getting some traction uh but uh, again it's it's kind of a, it's it's almost deja vu because you're right in that they uh you know they wanted to do away with ice before and there was a lot of backlash i don't think the american people agree with this
2: well i can tell you the people in florida 17 uh don't agree and i would actually argue that most americans don't agree uh of defunding their police departments it's 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 just crazy that we're actually having a conversation about it. But it's happening. I mean, in New York City, de Blasio has uh, passed that they're going to take a billion dollars of the $6 billion that um, NYPD gets and divert the money to social programs. So it's not just something that's being talked about by the fringe. It is actually happening in cities across our country.
0: And I, I think it gives a clear contrast between the two parties and their approach to, Making communities safe, uh, you know, one wants to basically uh, give a green light to uh, to the thugs and the criminals and and let them own the streets.
2: Well, and releasing them from jails and shutting down our prison systems, and oh, let's let's do away with ICE and let's do away with uh, one of the things in in this bill is demilitarizing the police force. Well, that's just code for taking their guns away. So not only are we going to defund them and do away with them, what's left of them, we're going to take away their weaponry and not allow them to be able to defend themselves against gangsters and criminals. I mean, the Democratic Party, when I came into Congress, was all about fighting the wall on the southern border and open borders and allowing anybody to come in. And so now we're going to do away with ICE, who actually enforces our immigration laws, and then have an open border that people can just come in.
0: Yeah, it, um, it defies re, it defies common sense. uh, No question about it. Congressman Stubbe, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Appreciate you uh, taking time to uh, to visit with us today.
2: Yeah, anytime. Thank you. All
0: right. uh, Congressman Greg Stubbe of Florida's 17th Congressional District. I I, want to continue on with this conversation, but I want to shift gears just a little bit to get the perspective of uh, of someone who has actually worked in this capacity uh as as you know our listeners know I spent uh, 10 years as a police officer but I I want to bring in Congressman John Rutherford he's a former sheriff of Duval County in Florida as well he's a member of the House Committee on Appropriations uh Congressman Rutherford thanks so much for uh, joining us today
3: Good to be with you Tony
0: um, you you've spent uh, a career in law enforcement, you know, the importance of uh, having a presence on the street and its importance in keeping, uh, you know, the community safe. Also as sheriff, you oversaw uh, local prisons and jails. Um, this call to to defund law enforcement and to incentivize the closing of prisons and jails at the state and local level. Where is this going to lead?
3: Well, Tony, I can give you from experience uh, a situation where we did defund the police. and It actually occurred in 2011 in Jacksonville. Uh, I, was, I was sheriff at that time. In 2011, the city of Jacksonville had the lowest murder numbers, lowest violent crime numbers they had seen in 40 years. And I attribute that to a, a really what I call the pie. Of, of fighting crime. And that's PIE. The P is prevention. The I is intervention. And then the E is enforcement. And what these people are calling for, if you, if you cut out either one of those legs of that three-legged stool, Tony, the whole system is going to collapse. And so what happened in 2011 in Jacksonville, uh, we got a new mayor elected. He cut my budget so significantly, we had to lay off 147 police and community service officers. Um, actually, another 92 community service officers. So, 230 crime fighters. And uh, guess what happened after that, Tony?
0: Uh, crime went up.
3: Uh, crime went up. Murder went up. Violent crime went up. And in the, in, the, the, in the neighborhoods that we were in, there working with some great community outreach. You know, we had the entire thing going. Uh, met mayor Payton, who had been the previous uh, mayor, who really gave me the resources that I needed within the police department. and uh, But he also but he also funded programs in the community for at-risk youth, and, and those were great. We put together a great reentry program for those coming out of state prison so that they were successful when they came back to our community. So we had the prevention, the intervention, and the enforcement, and just by cutting one leg, Jacksonville is still suffering. Uh, this is five years later. They're still suffering from uh, increased homicides and violent crime.
0: Do you? I, I asked uh, your colleague, uh, Congressman Stubbe, if he if he thought this would get any traction. Uh, but, but clearly, there are some within the upper ranks of the Democratic Party that thinks this is a uh, is a way forward is to cut the funding of law enforcement. It's happening in cities across the country. I mean, this it's taken us um, nearly three decades to see a uh, you know a steady reduction in crime from the nineteen seventies. That's all at risk in this.
3: Well, li- listen, I- I'll say this too, uh, Tony. This bill is, is really m- more like uh, the Green New Deal masquerading as law enforcement reform because when, when you dig into this, you see elements in there dealing with the environment, uh, de- expanding medical care, uh, Medicaid, uh, a living wage. I mean, there's a lot more in this bill than just defunding the police, although that is that is a horrible piece of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, no question that uh, that is a key part of every measure they put forward. Uh, we, we're going to we're wrapping up Run running out of time, uh, Congressman, but very quickly, uh, the impact this will have on the average law enforcement officer on the street, this move to defund police.
3: Uh Tony, it, it is going to cause irreparable harm because what's in this bill also is eliminating qualified immunity. Are we done?
0: Uh, we're, we're you got 15 seconds?
3: Okay. Qualified immunity is the bedrock of law enforcement. If you do away with that, police officers will not be able to do their job. They won't do it for fear that they'll lose their family's future.
0: Yeah, and we're actually already seeing that law enforcement officers kind of backing up out of fear with what's happening. Uh, Congressman Rutherford, thanks so much for joining us. And, and, and as this conversation continues, we want to get you back on to talk more about okay. this from from a personal perspective. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you,
0: Tony. All right, folks, uh, don't go away because I, I want to go back. Uh, I'm going to stay on this topic rather, and, and I want to talk about this connection between uh, this rise in crime, uh, cities across the nation over this last weekend, a spike. Is it related to this call to defund law enforcement? We'll talk about it next. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation and the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold.
4: Absent fathers, distracted fathers, and angry fathers have created a vacuum of the soul in the lives of many children. Pornography is epidemic, affecting the male brain, isolating his heart, and degrading women who long to be cherished. Confusion and even skepticism about marriage run rampant, especially in our younger generations. Selfishness among men has led to broken homes and a trail littered with broken hearts, including their own. Where can you turn to find the solutions to these problems? Leadership in Love, A Tale of Two Fathers is a new publication from Family Research Council that takes a look at two men, Joshua and the father of the prodigal son, as strong examples of leadership and love. It also weaves in an understanding of attachment science to underscore the needs of children which need to be met to become emotionally healthy and spiritually strong. Visit frc.org slash fathers to learn more.
0: In today's culture, it can be different. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins, and the website, TonyPerkins.com. I know we're moving fast today, a lot of information. If you miss anything, you can find it later at TonyPerkins.com. You know, as we heard in the, uh, the previous segment, the possibility of increased crime rates with defunding police departments seems to be inevitable. The proof is uh, is in the pudding. As many across the country are acting as if officers do not exist, and violence is surging. I mean, just this weekend, Chicago, 17 dead, 70 wounded. New York City, 10 dead. A 53% increase this year in shootings. Is there a connection between this call to defund law enforcement, and in fact not just a call, some are doing it, uh, and a rise in crime? And what a, what effect is this going to have on the police officer on the street? Joining me now to talk about this is law enforcement consultant and Ph.D. candidate at the University of Cambridge, uh, Vincent hernum uh, Vincent, welcome to Washington Watch.
5: Thanks for having me, Tony. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, let me ask you this. Why is violent crime surging in major cities across America?
5: Well, I think that... Any astute political observer, any, any American would assume that there is a logic between police uh, engaging or, or de as it were, because of the, the sort of uh, mounting pressure against them. And so this increase in depolicing policing results in a nascent increase in crime in, in these locales. At the outset, you mentioned Chicago and, um, of course, seeing increases in New York and, and Minneapolis as well. And so this sort of goes back to a concept that was coined by um, uh, Sam Dotson of the um, St. Louis Police. Uh, he called it the Ferguson effect, uh, in, in which uh, downward pressure, anti-cop rhetoric, creates a climate in which law enforcement they, they, they disengage from proactive policing.
0: Well, and that's real. I mean, as a former police officer, I spent 10 years uh, not in a an environment as we have now, but after. I mean, anytime there was a a, a officer involved shooting and it was controversial and there was some overtones to it. I, I mean, you just you kind of backed up a little bit. You were uh, a little hesitant at times, which is, can be not only uh, it can be devastating for the community, but it can be devastating, obviously, for officers if they hesitate in a, in a moment of uh, where the quick decision is needed. But d- do you see this as this um, call, this demand for deep? de-policing or, or defunding of the police, do you do you see foresee an increase, a, a greater surge in crime?
5: Yeah, I think that's a real possibility. Uh, it's, the difference between 2014 and, and 2020 is that, again, we're seeing these, these concrete calls, these concrete legislations to defund policing across the country. And there's no question in my mind that this has a, a, a effect of simply demoralizing uh, the, the sort of cop on the beat. They simply don't want to engage with, with members of the public. And, of course, you're having this constant drumbeat from the media and decrying police officers and um, using events like the death of, of George Floyd as, as being emblematic of the way law enforcement engage with the public. So police moral uh, um, is being zapped and they, they don't want to engage with the public. And so crime will increase as a result. So there, there, there is a potential for a crime or or a concert in the future. This, this will kind
0: of exacerbate, exacerbate the, the situation, because what will happen is that as you defund law enforcement, that means less training, and it means less qualified personnel will actually be on the streets, which could lead to more incidents of uh, police violence.
5: Yeah, this is absolutely correct. I think you, you've hit the nail right on the head. Uh, I think this will have a massive backfiring effect. Uh, on one hand, of course, as you mentioned, there'll be, there'll be a lot less money going towards training, which appears to be, to be, to me, at least a massive problem with the way policing is conducted across, across the United States. There simply isn't enough training going on. There, there, there aren't officers doing you know, what to do in specific situations and, and when these situations arise. And more so, I think what this also does is that it, it discourages good Americans from, from, from applying to police services within their, their communities. And so as a result, a lot of these law enforcement organizations are going to lower their, their standard of, uh, of admission. Yeah. And so, you know, we something as, as uh, like having a tattoo, or you know, um, you know, maybe even a, a slight on uh, one's criminal record, these are all things that are purpose, purposely uh, admissible now. And so, you're yeah. getting a, a less qualified crop of, of officers
0: yeah no question no question i've i 've talked to law enforcement officials and, and and just because of what happened, even going back to ferguson and and what uh, occurred with attacks on police after that we had an attack in Dallas. I actually had one in my home city of of baton rouge many uh, Many decided to take a different route to occupationally moving away from law enforcement and it resulted in the lowering of the standards Let, let me ask you, you made the point. That, you know, we've seen for the last quarter of a century a reduction in violent crime, Uh, actually going back to the 70s, we've seen a steady reduction. That all could be lost if we're not careful. So there could be some really long term consequences to decisions that are made right now in cities across America.
5: Yeah, I think, again, I think this is a real possibility. There are many factors that are coming together that are coalescing. So on one hand, we see that there is a legitimacy crisis in law enforcement. The public simply does not believe in in, in the capabilities of, of the local law enforcement. And so then this, this obviously zaps the moral of, of police. And more so, we're also dealing with a, a hiring and retention crisis in policing, where officers simply don't want to remain on the force, aren't motivated to leave out. And while you know we'll see depolicing in cities where there, there's been a viral shooting and a, a resultant investigation, whether state or federal, into that uh, specific organization, we'll now start to see depolicing across the country. So we'll, we'll actually see the opposite effect, as described by conservatives, and we'll see a new increase in crime, like we've, we've never we've never seen before, at least a reversal of the of the crime drop of the 1990s.
0: So uh, very quickly, Vincent, when you add this to a a rising use of drugs, when you see the the growing uh, problem that we're having in cities with uh, with, with drug use, um, you combine the two, and I mean we could we could be having a a, a huge problem in major cities across America.
5: Yeah, uh, far. Far greater problem than we already have. Uh, this is a, a, a toxic cocktail. This is a, a dangerous combination. Uh, the OPI crisis mixed with uh, massive de policing does not bode well for content moving into the future.
0: Yeah, I, I, we hope and pray that uh, policymakers think long and hard about these decisions. Uh, Vincent Harnham thank you so much for uh, joining us. Appreciate you taking time to join us actually uh, from England uh, to discuss this.
5: Thank you so much for having me, Tony. Excellent
0: conversation. Hope to uh, continue it in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Count on it. Vincent Heron, find out more. Go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, coming up next, uh, is this call to defund the police and what Black Lives Matter uh, is doing, is that supported throughout the African-American community? That's next here on Washington Watch. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. Glad to have you along. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on uh, Twitter or Parler, it's at T Perkins. All right, I'm continuing this conversation. I think it's important. Um, I just know, I know many, I continue to know a lot of folks in law enforcement. It was, uh, it's just an important part of our communities. And this um, call to defund law enforcement I'm telling you, it's having a demoralizing effect upon police officers across the country, and we're seeing it. Uh, retirements, people are leaving early. Uh, as we were just discussing, good people are choosing other vocations. Um It's just, it's it's not good. And the outcome here, I think, is going to be disastrous. But there's more behind this agenda with Black Lives Matter, as we were talking about. Uh, not only is it about the police, you know, it, Tearing down statues, um, and then of course there are others that are coming underneath of this to advance, a what I would say is a Marxist agenda. Well, joining me now to talk uh, more about this and can kind of give us a historical perspective of some of those who have actually been targeted by uh, these protesters is um, uh, uh, Frederick. I, I want to talk about Frederick Douglass, but to bring, uh, I want to bring in Dean Nelson to talk about. that. dean is a vice. Is a uh, senior fellow here at the Family Research Council for African American affairs, and um, actually also uh, head up the Frederick Douglass Association. So, uh, Dean, welcome back to Washington Watch.
6: Great to be back with you, Tony.
0: Um, Very quickly, I I want to get on to Frederick Douglass because I don't think a lot of people understand the importance of, uh, of of Frederick Douglass. But first the the Black Lives Matter and this whole agenda and it is way beyond just the black community. But when they're calling for the defunding of the police and they're tearing down, calling for the tearing down of statues and and different things, is that reflective of the uh, the the entire African American community in America?
6: Uh, By no means is it, and certainly not the kind of community that I grew up in, uh, growing up in. Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., uh, we were taught to respect authority. We were taught to uh, affirm the traditional values growing up in the African-American church. We always understood that there was racism, and there will always be that. That's the human condition. But yeah. I think that it's a huge mistake uh, to ascribe Black Lives Matter as a movement and certainly the organization that represents um, much of the, uh, of the black community, certainly yeah. not all of the black community
0: one of the statues has been targeted frederick douglas and you wrote a piece about frederick douglas's fourth of july speech um there's the, the this is tragic quite frankly that frederick douglas would be one of those individuals targeted
6: absolutely amazing i uh, i talked to uh, one of our chapter presidents in rochester new york where frederick Douglass. Uh, lived and where he gave that famous speech, um, on 4th of July, actually gave it on the 5th. Uh, first to find out, was this true? It just did not make any sense to me that anybody would do this. And he affirmed, in fact, it was true that they had dismantled and, uh, and, um, you know, destroyed part of that statue. Uh, but you're right. Frederick Douglass, uh, gave that historic speech in Rochester, which was a, you know, it was, it was hard medicine. It was very strong to, uh, our nation because in the time he gave it 1852 we had slavery although new york did not but much of america did have slavery but the thing that i tried to point out in the uh in the piece was even though he came really hard and challenged America to live up to its founding principles, two things that he also did. One, he emphasized that the Constitution was a pro-liberty document, not a pro-slavery document. And then secondly, he ended his message with hope, hope that America would one day live up to its founding principles, which, of course, after the Civil War, it did
0: why would his statue be targeted? Is it just uh, just ignorance to our history and who these figures are?
6: You know, when I talk to our group up there, they're working with law enforcement, trying to find out. They haven't, to my knowledge, found out who did it. Uh, we can't prescribe. uh You know, I don't know if it was Black Lives Matter activists. I don't know if it was a random thing. We don't know who it was. But for certain, much of America... Uh, even the black America has forgotten about who Frederick Douglass really was. When I mentioned that famous speech, if you were to go online virtually anywhere, it'll be hard for you to find a full quote in context. They want to take pieces of Frederick Douglass' statement uh, to fit their narrative and to fit their agenda, rather than presenting the message of Frederick Douglass in terms of what he really uh really did. Much like Martin Luther King Jr., he called for justice, but at the same time, one of my favorite quotes from Frederick Douglass uh, basically is quoting Proverbs where he says that, you know, um, righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. He says that's the whole of my politics, the positive and the negative of my politics. And I think yeah. that we must know who the person was uh, in full to really appreciate the work that he did.
0: But, uh, Dean Nelson, isn't that an argument for the case of protecting the statues, the the good, the bad, and the ugly? I mean, knowing our history, number one, there are no perfect people, but knowing that history gives us a chance to chart a course forward that moves us toward that better nation.
6: I think that those statues that exist uh, exist to help remind us of our past, and I certainly understand that there are... Uh, arguments as to why some statues should be removed and placed in other places but the reality is is that we cannot forget our history even the painful parts of our right. history right.
0: but we should also have the conversations and not just randomly lawlessly tear
6: down statues without a doubt Frederick Douglass would never advocate the destruction of property or the taking of innocent life He was one who emphasized protest, but doing it in a peaceful way, much like Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., 100 years later. All right,
0: Dean Nelson, thanks so much. Folks, don't go away. We're coming back with more on today's Supreme Court decisions after this.
7: Could you use some timely and original commentary to read this summer specifically on the issues facing our culture today? FRCblog.com is just what you're looking for. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, members of the Family Research Council team, as well as outside contributors. You can learn about religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Check out this list of a few of our most recent titles. What Does It Mean to Be a Woman? D.C. Christians Take to the Streets to Sing, Lament, and Pray? and prayerfully responding to civil unrest. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you to live out your faith and stand for truth. Our blog helps you do just that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. On April 16th, President Trump and the White House Coronavirus Task Force announced a three-phase plan with guidelines for how states can begin scaling back restrictions. Churches should begin putting in place plans to reopen and operate their ministries according to the guidance of the Centers for Disease Control as state officials begin lifting orders. Here at Family Research Council, we have summarized the White House three-phase plan and how it relates to in-person church meetings and gatherings. Check out our resource, What Pastors Should know about the White House plan to open up America again. Our resource offers practical guidelines for how churches and houses of worship can begin to operate safely as our country reopens. Visit frc.org slash church guidelines to view this resource and learn more. There you'll also find our full list of resources for churches in the time of coronavirus. Again, that's frc.org slash church guidelines.
0: I'm Tony Perkins, and this is Washington Watch, the website, TonyPerkins.com. Also, uh, let me remind you about the Stand Firm app. Hadn't talked about that in a while, but if you get the Stand Firm app, you can listen to Washington Watch anywhere in the world, actually. Also, we will uh, keep you up to date on action items that you need to uh, to take to defend faith, family, and freedom, and we'll give you the tools to do it. Go to the App Store Download the Stand Firm app or go to TonyPergins.com, follow the links over. All right, as I mentioned at the top of the program today, uh, two um, very positive decisions coming down from the Supreme Court. I know it's been a mixed bag thus far uh, this year. In fact, I think, but I think we're at the end. Uh, but these two cases dealing with religious liberty one, Little Sisters of the Poor. This has been going on for almost a decade. In which uh, this goes back to the Obamacare contraceptive mandate. The Little Sisters of the Poor, uh, Catholic nuns serving the poor, being forced in their health care plans to have contraceptive coverage, contraception coverage, which would include, uh, as uh, you know, we went back to the uh, Hobby Lobby case. It's like 21 different types, a couple of which are considered abortifacients. I mean, it's nonsensical. You're going to force nuns to have contraception. Now, the, the obviously the issue here is violates their religious the tenets of their their faith. And uh, today, uh, they finally finally uh, appear to, after, again after nearly a decade, they're able to turn their focus back to their ministry and away from fighting for religious freedom in the courts. And then another case. Dealing with religious organizations being able to require their employees adhere to a religious standard. Well, joining me now to talk more about these two cases and the implication of them is FRC's Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs, Travis Weber. Travis, welcome back. Thank you, Tony. Okay, so let's, uh, let's start with the Little Sisters. Uh, this, um, as I understand it, what, what was at, at issue here was that the Trump administration adopted a rule that corrected what had been done under the Obama administrations as it pertained to the contraceptive mandate. That was challenged, uh, at, the rule change was challenged, and that's what ended up back in court today, and the Supreme Court ruled that what the, uh, the rule change by the Trump administration was in keeping with uh, you know, the constitutional rights of uh, of religious organizations and and was done appropriately. And so, therefore, relief finally to the Little Sisters. Is that correct,
1: Tony? In essence, that's correct. Um, you know, this this saga, as you noted, has been ongoing for a long time. Uh, you know, and frankly, it's probably still not over. I, I mean, there's going to be the opponents of the Little Sisters who don't want to let them rest, opponents of religious freedom, are going to find some new way to try to force them back into court, to force them to defend their conscience rights, um, to not be wanting to be involved providing these abortion-causing drugs and services against their consciences. So, frankly, despite the victory today, it's probably still not over because of uh, the antagonists of religious freedom in our society. But today was a victory, um, as you noted, a victory for the administration. This was a challenge to a rule that Trump uh, President Trump himself, uh, issued through HHS, in which he referenced in his May 2017 executive order on religious freedom. From the early days of his administration, he recognized the need to fix this issue. He fixed it and then won in today in the courts. Uh, his Department of Justice has done a stellar job defending religious freedom, defending the administration here and, um, the president's two appointments to the court were on the right side of this case, was Justice Gorsuch actually joining a very strong concurrence by Justice Alito. So a, a very good opinion there uh, in addition to the result. So I think there's some things definitely we can celebrate today. I mean, this was a 7-2 decision by the court, was it not? It, it was a 7-2 decision. So you had seven justices agreeing with the result of uh, letting the administration issue this rule. Now, you had five justices agreeing with the court's opinion, Thomas Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. That opinion said basically the government had the statutory authority to issue this rule um, under the Affordable Care Act and related regulations and or related laws. And it did so properly under the Administrative Procedures Act. And, um, uh, you know, the court did not decide the Religious Freedom Restoration Act challenge. Uh, that's why I say this may go back and we may see more court challenges following this. The court did not decide that question. Uh, Justice Alito and Gorsuch said we would decide that question today and just end this. Uh, but uh, that's what you had as far as the majority opinion. Then you had Justices uh, Breyer and Kagan actually agreeing with the result, concurring in the judgment but writing their own opinion, basically um Saying the government has the authority to do this, President Trump does, but, but for different reasons. So, uh, you know, more of a technical administrative, uh, difference there in terms of the reasoning of the judges, although justices, they agreed with the result. And then you had justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor dissenting, uh, uh, saying that this, you know, is so problematic, acting like it's the worst thing ever, some sort of, you know, big, uh, you know, uh, big ruling and win for religious freedom when the court did not even rule on the religious freedom question. They were really lamenting, you know, the, the even the idea of a religious claim being brought. Uh, very, very alarming opinion, actually, The sent in this case, as well as the other one, uh, Justice Ginsburg and Sotomayor. Um, and really kind of celebrating, you know, the government being able to provide free for all access to contraception all around and using tax dollars to do it. So um that that's basically the breakdown of little sister's opinions um today that we received
0: you know it's what we've seen in in recent times from the court rarely is an issue decided definitively i mean they 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 take one element of it but yet it's it's liable to one other aspect could come under attack so you're you're right in that it's a, it's a, it's a victory but you know increasingly we see um these, the, the very kind of narrow decisions on certain grounds before the court.
1: Tony, I think that's true. You know, and there are some different, I think different things at play here. I mean, there are, there are doctrines, legal doctrines, which will lead the court to, in some cases, properly issue a narrow ruling. In other cases, uh, the court should more robustly deal with the issue, and they just don't for, for whatever reason. Um maybe they, they don't want to wade into something they think is going to receive blowback, but, the judges and justices should rule based on the the, the, the uh, with integrity dealing with the issues before the court uh you know so i think uh, here um it's a win and um you had uh many you know conservative justices like justice thomas writing the the opinion for the court he's not afraid of of controversy um you know i think he had reasons for laying out his his thinking in that opinion uh it's good to see justice alito and gorsuch write uh, a very strong concurrence. I, I think, Tony, you know, the story of this and the other opinion today is really the dissent by justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor. If you want a glimpse into the type of justices that Joe Biden or a Democratic administration is going to put on the court, just look at their dissent. Hostile to religion, irrational at times, uh, claiming, you know, they're trying to stop religious animus. In reality their dissent and the language in that dissent exhibits animus against religion. They can't stand the idea of a legitimate religious claim uh uh being at play in the public square and affecting public policy. It's almost in a a you know a tribute to the secular state, the power of the secular state being able to issue whatever edicts it wants And everyone just has to run with it. And that's the way it is in the mind and reasoning of Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor. And this is very alarming. People should be aware of this because we know the courts are going to continue to be at issue uh, with this election, not just the Supreme Court, perhaps, but definitely the lower courts.
0: Uh, Very good point. Very good point. You can see the judicial philosophy at play here. Let's talk about uh, the, the second case handed down today. Uh, in particular, or, or specifically, this case dealt with uh, religious school in the ability to hold uh, teachers to a religious standard that is embraced by the institution. Uh, tell our listeners about this case.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, Tony, this case, Our Lady of Guadalupe versus Morrissey Beru, um, this case uh, dealt with the First Amendment ministerial exception. And... Um, uh, you know, this is a very important case when it when it comes to religious freedom. The um, uh, just like in the Little Sisters case, uh, the Department of Justice here defended the religious freedom of the schools. Um, and this is a victory for the administration's work defending religious freedom. Uh, President Trump's and again, his appointments of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are on the right side of this case. So some really positive things happening today. But in terms of the case itself, the question is how much autonomy and leeway a religious institution gets in determining um, how it should carry forth its doctrine, the idea of it picking its ministers, right? So what the court really goes into here is an analysis of what does this mean, what's underlying this doctrine, the idea being To have religious freedom, you need to decide how and when and who carries on the faith for your institution. Here it's a religious school. And that can't be just looking at the title minister or, you know, hanging on whether someone has the title of minister. As the court notes, there are many people, many individuals in institutions, carry on the faith of the institution, even if they don't have the title of minister. And other institutions of different faiths don't even use the word minister, Jewish and Muslim faiths and others, so you can't use that word alone. So the court quite rightly digs down deep, more deeply and says, uh, you have to look at what the person does, what the employee does for the institution, whether their role is one in which they're entrusted with carrying forth the doctrines of the institution or the school and says, look, if they are, the school can determine or the religious institution can determine to fire them. And that's within their autonomy. That's within their right under the first amendment ministerial exception. So a really um, a positive ruling today, expanding the ministerial exception under the first amendment or clarifying it, I should say. Um, and, and the court's opinion being written by just Alito joined by Roberts, Thomas, Breyer, Kagan, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. So, uh, uh, an encouraging breath of justices on this opinion which which just outlines the reasoning I overviewed with you tony um, and again, justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg dissenting, not wanting religious rights to be heard in in today in america today um their their dissent was very negative but um you know, I think the, the court's reasoning here is significant for religious freedom. There are other battles that are going to have to be fought. This is not the end of the story in terms of litigation, but they carved out a win uh, or, or, or articulated a win for religious freedom under First Amendment rights and how we understand those First Amendment rights for religious schools, but also for other religious institutions. Anyone who determines how and who they're go, through who they're going to carry on the tenets of their faith and in the, in the institution. Yeah, how how how
0: bright of a line did they draw in in their decision in this case? Because you you don't have in this particular case, you have a, a school, you have a teacher involved that would be, uh, you know, uh, potentially teaching religious um, tenets. But what about the religious organization that has a a, a conduct? a uh, religious conduct based upon those tenets.
1: Um,
0: did, did they go that far?
1: Well, in, in, in a way they did. So, to Tony, they're really looking here at the question of whether – the question is here is who gets to hire and fire these right. employees. So um, th- that's – you know, the, the question is can a religious institution say we're going to dictate everyone we hire and fire because everyone's a minister, well, they probably can't go there. But if they can show – that the individual is integral to carrying on the faith. Uh, yes, you know, they, they probably can. Here the court said they criticized the lower court for placing, quote, undue weight on the teacher's lack of clerical titles, unquote. It said, quote, they did not give enough weight to their role in religious instruction. So looking at the role, looking at what does the employee do, uh, that's what if the religious institution can show that they're on solid ground. And I could you know read through sections of the opinion here, Tony, where the court, you know, just um, cites an abundant record of performing religious duties in the role, educating and forming students, teaching, carrying on instruction, providing instruction about the faith. So all of these functions, if they can show functions of carrying on the faith, uh, the religious organization is going to be protected.
0: So uh, bottom line today, uh, two significant, uh, important cases being decided by the Supreme Court in favor of uh, religious freedom.
1: Tony, that's the bottom line. And we could add to that uh, significant wins for the administration's policy on religious freedom and cases in which we are presented with a choice of judicial philosophy, seeing the president's appointment side with religious freedom and those who don't share an originalist uh, philosophy that protects religious freedom, really opposing it in a pretty aggressive manner and celebrating the power of the secular state over religious institutions in justices, Ginsburg and, and Sotomayor. So, Definitely a stark contrast with uh, the bench and 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 the policies that uh, are at issue in these cases.
0: So most likely, uh, had the uh, the 2016 election gone the other direction, we wouldn't have seen uh, cases like today being handed down.
1: We wouldn't. We would see uh, cases in which the court is saying everyone has to submit to the power of the state because these are requirements being imposed by the state and. Uh, we're sorry, but uh, your sincere religious beliefs um, just don't carry weight, and they're, they're outweighed by the determinations of the secular state. It, it, yeah. That's a position at odds with with the history of America, with how we understand the First Amendment and religious freedom, and people need to be aware this is at issue right now in 2020.
0: Uh, vigilance is required. We can never, ever rest on the religious freedom of the past. We have to exercise it today and protect it for tomorrow. Travis Weber, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us today and uh, running down today's Supreme Court decisions. Thanks, Tony. And folks, thank you for joining us as well. And uh, we all have a role to play in defending these fundamental freedoms. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand. By all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported